Welcome to Trying to Be Kind, a podcast that looks at various things in the TTRPG space under an academic lens. And yeah, here we are with our promised follow-up episode where we actually get into the nitty-gritty of Cinderbrush, the critical role one-shot of Monster Hearts. But before that, Vi, my friend, why don't you introduce our uh, survey introductory question for the day? Oh my goodness. All right. So our question of this week. Hi, I'm guest guest uh, podcaster Vi. Hi, Vi. <laughs> Hi, Vi. Our um, question is for the three of you. Would you rather date horse girl Matt Mercer or real life Matt Mercer? Hi, I'm Fiona Maeve Geist and I would make Matt Mercer stiffen and blush as a horse girl. Please don't sue me, Matt Mercer. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mahar, and I would say, actually, I would rather Sorry, date a real person. I should definitely say that. Consensually. I would, I would rather date a real person. I, would, I don't think I'm Matt Mercer's type, but who knows? For all you know, uh, he can think about it. So I would date real person, Matt Mercer. Well, let me think. Uh, oh, I, uh, my name is Jared. I'm, I don't... This is a hard question for me, everyone. I don't really have... A strong opinion about either of the options, although I do fear that perhaps uh, DM Matt Mercer of real world fame would maybe like on a first date, I feel like he might try and stage things a little like he, he might railroad me on the date in the mm. bad way. So I'm, I'm going to go with her horse girl, Matt Mercer. All right. He'll railroad you. Very interesting choice of words there. Yeah, in the bad way. <laughs> Are you saying once again that systems matter? I think that was Jared rolling a roll to shut down for those that are on the inside track of Monster Hearts terms and PBTA moves. Mm -hmm. Using the high cold from his previously established skin as a vampire. Damn, good memory, Fiona. Wow. Well, we're recapping the recap episode. This is really funny. Um, good, good. My official introduction, if, 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 oh, if it's required, I'm, I'm Vi Huntsman, the, once again the guest. And as the, the resident Critical Role expert, I will say that of the core Critical Role cast, Matt seems to be the corniest of the, of the group. I think really Matt Mercer is the horse girl of Critical Role. And so um, wow. I... Uh, yeah, like battling the the premise of the question itself, I'm going to say Matt Mercer himself because they are one in the same. Wow. Okay. Okay. I mean, trust the. Are you? You know, Vi's not a millennial. You're uh, a Gen Zer, aren't you? I'm a zillennial because categories are fake, and I'm non-binary. <laughs> well, yeah, you know. <laughs> You know, actually, that's on me. That's on me. But the the the, uh, the generational shift is obvious. We were talking about our difference in ages, and we were, and we were, and it's with abject horror that I found out that I'm at least fourteen years older than Vi. <sighs> it's okay, Mahar. I called I you mean, baby though, and oh. so that's what you should focus on. <laughs> yeah, hey, in fact, I'm the oldest member of this podcast. Why don't you? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, here we are. Here we are. Like, you know, shenanigans aside, here we are. And we're talking about Critical Role. And, of course, at the time of recording, Critical Role has once again reared its head in different spaces of the TTRPG space, to which 
I personally am going to say I don't want to relitigate that. I would rather just listen to any people affected by current discourse. I'm not going to be discoursing about discourse today, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. yeah. I'm not really hip to all to that jive because I left Twitter. So, yeah, um, I, I only have heard the vaguest of whispers about that. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, honestly, just to, because I know, I know. People sometimes expect us to fail at being kind, no matter how hard we try. But <laughs> that's mm-hmm. not our job today. Our job today is Cinderbrush, to which we have a couple questions. Because here we go. This is going to be a bit of a big episode, I think, because we're talking not just about Cinderbrush itself. We're talking about actual play and how actual play interacts with the text that it's based on, a.k.a. the game. Jared, a system matters discussion if there was one. And basically, and of course, you know, you know what? I'm going to stop like ribbing Jared about that. I mean, Jared, <laughs> Jared, Jared comes ribbed on his own. That, oh, that sounds pre-ribbed. So That's me. That's, mm-hmm. I, that was trying to be clever instead. <laughs> this is trying to be kind. Don't try to be clever. Okay. You tried to slip a, a, a joke and you slipped an innuendo. Oh, God. I'm so sorry. I don't intend to be this Jared's way. just a bit slippery, this podcast. It's I'm on the This is. I'm going to be the reason why this podcast, if it ever gets popular, will be demonetized within seconds. Okay. So here but rather we need to ask ourselves like first how do how do ap's interact with games and change the play and the representation of play thereof because let's face it you're knowingly being observed you know you're being watched and this is still a an entertainment company doing this and then Mm -hmm. we need to move on to the whole notion of ap as an intellectual exercise and how in this episode of critical role lore in in all its one shots glory how we felt at least i felt that this contained quite a bit of tensions when they were trying to play a game but under the auspices of an actual play uh framework definitely So, so yeah Yes, this is known as setting your your methodology. Oh, God, English has a second language, but you know what I mean. So here (laughs) we go. (laughs) I know I mispronounced that word so bad. So here we go. Thoughts, friendos, because I was talking to Fiona about this a few days ago. And for the life of me, I just can't remember the details of the episode. And I've watched this at least five times. And when I (laughs) reread my notes... I don't know what my notes are referring to. <laughs> yeah, like, this happened for me because I was having trouble remembering, right, like, the last hour of it. Like, I can kind of narrate a plot, but, like, I was, like, tempted, right, because I'm looking on the tube of you, and I try not to mess up my algorithm too much, but, like, it gets horribly damaged by the industry I work in, no matter what. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So... You know, it's like, oh, there's some fan videos of, like, their favorite moments, right? Like, I watched some. They have fairly high popularity. As far as I can tell, they're by just general fans of the show. And, you know, what I thought was interesting is they're almost all character moments. They're not really plot beats. Yes. It really drove home to me how much this felt like watching a lot of shonen anime growing up of, like... You know, there's the character moments, but, like, the plot of this episode is meaningless. Like, nothing is actually changing. 
like, you know, mid-season Dragon Ball Z energy. Yeah, I got that feeling from probably the, I'm going to go so far as to say the entire first half of the show was all sort of establishing character stuff and little to no, to my recollection, little to no plot at all, which is like fine. It's just interesting. It's one of those things of, it's why I want to kind of point out how we don't have a critical language, right? Like both as RPGs or as actual play, right? Of like, I could talk about it as a play based on a book, but that's wrong, right? Like the goal isn't to stage the rules of monster hearts exactly. And I don't know if that would even make an entertaining final product for them but it has some of the conventions of television or radio serials, but like it's neither, right? Yeah. Like they have more to work with than voices. Um, although they're all quite good at voice acting and they don't have as much of a script to work with, but they do have kind of guidelines that exist and the game. And that's, what's interesting to me because on the more memorable bits, the bits where it seemed like in some ways Matt Mercer was uncomfortable DMing, if we want to talk about plots, not in the sense of, I think he was like viscerally uncomfortable at a, this is bad X card, et cetera way. But like, it seemed unexpected to him, right? Like truly something surprised him at the table. Mm. Like improv he, speed bump. Yeah. And he had to, I think also consider his audience when he made an adjustment on the fly. Right. Um, for those that care, about spoilers. I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> For the spoiler, there's a bit where Erika Ishii's character seduces a police officer to get them out of trouble. I don't remember the exact context of why there's a police officer because it felt a bit like an arbitrary obstacle to make sure all the characters were together. Yeah, I just but remember like, them getting pulled over. I don't remember yeah, why. Yeah, like they're, they're in a car going from scene to scene and it's got everyone being able to ensemble cast, right? Well, that's actually the following. There's two encounters with the police officer. The first one's at one character's house, but, but, um, that's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cause there's, there's the, before we get too too far into like story details, I did actually write up a, um, a thorough, but as brief as it can be summary of the, the narrative of the, of the episode. Oh, um, fine, you're you, my hero. <laughs> if you'd he, like a kind of what happened last week kind of uh <laughs> Yo, I wanna I wanna hear this. Like, you know, um Cinderbrush in five minutes or less. Okay. That so is we, what it'll be. Yeah. So Jared, we need to have like uh I guess one of those like movie um voiceovers <laughs> in the previous previously on Cinderbrush. Five. Perfect. Four, three, two, one. The previously established seating chart is introduced to the viewers as the players do some introductory roleplay. Sasha is the queen. Her NPCs are the hive. Cameron is the infernal, a football star who's going through a slump, which includes a recent breakup with Sasha. His NPCs are his teammates and the girl who does his homework. Jamie's the witch, a goth stoner teenage drug dealer. Their NPCs aren't important. 
Af is the werewolf, a new kid in town, and with major anger issues, and their only important NPC is the very plot-relevant horse girl, Amanda Beltman. The first few scenes revolved around how, during character creation, Af punched football player Jason Buckner for seemingly no reason. But this is resolved quickly when, during lunch, Sasha takes Af's side as she hazes Af with a very friendly yet sinister entrance exam which is what she calls it. After lunch, many students receive a mass text about a rave going on tonight, so the PCs make preparations. Cam accompanies Jamie to their secret hideout in the quarry to get some drugs to sell, but they're discovered by, e by Evan. We get our first few rolls as Cam punches Evan, and Jamie scares him with hallucinations. Meanwhile, Af lies to their perfect father to get out of working a shift so they can go to the rave. Then Cameron is briefly whispered to by an eldritch power before Amy arrives to give him a private tutoring session. He ends up kissing her and inviting her to the rave. Unbeknownst to him, one of Sasha's hive was watching in the in the bushes through the window and snapped a picture of their kiss. Sasha tries and fails to use this picture to shut down Cameron. Aff lies to their perfect dad. Cameron has a run-in with each of his shitty parents and we're off to the rave. At the rave, pretty quickly, Jamie is selling drugs, Aff is high, Cam is caught between his tutor Amy and his ex Sasha, all while Sasha is causing all kinds of trouble. Horse girl Amanda is also there and obviously out of her depth. And this is where the turning point happens. Just past the stream's halfway point, Matt says to Aff, You have a moment of clarity and realize you haven't seen Amanda in a while. And this is the end of the summary because from this point on, uh, uh, <laughs> just about all the plot things that have been set up are dropped as the party tries to find Amanda. They realize she's been kidnapped and ritually murdered by a cult. They find and leave her body where it's been dumped in the quarry. They um, go to school the next day and realize one of the football players was magically involved. They realize the mastermind was the person who sent the mass text inviting the teens to the rave. They find out where she is, have a few run-in with the cops, which we mentioned and we'll definitely talk about in further detail. Um, they find her at the church, her being the mastermind that coordinated this and they have a boss battle before the police show up and everything is tied up in a bow and that's the episode Vi, you're brilliant thank you so much for doing that because <laughs> my you know, pleasure you know that a plus good good oh. note taking that cliff notes spark notes version mm, thank you i still I'm don't know what happened so it's hard. <laughs> I tried so hard. I worked so hard. I got I mean, an A plus, and still you don't know. No, but you no, know what I mean. Everyone at the end of the graduate yeah. class. But, but it's just, I don't understand what you wrote. But that's but. still exactly what I mean. Like in terms yeah. of the mounting significance of what happened, I do agree that the first half was like all of these setups that just got dropped, and that's Absolutely. why. And that's why towards the end. It's kind of like, okay, and Mercer decided we're in a one-shot and we got to end this. At least yeah. that's what it felt like to me. No, definitely. But, there's there's this moment yeah. that, that happened that I didn't mention in the summary where um, some of... I, I mentioned that Jamie's NPCs from the seating chart aren't very important. Two of them, or at least at least one of them like works for the school paper. And there's this insinuation that like, they're going to write this smear piece about Aff, the new kid, because they punched one of the football players. Um, and then right after that, when Sasha is talking to Aff at lunch, doing the kind of hazing um, entrance exam, um, Sasha says, Hey, we should like get a, a like happy piece about you in the school paper and like establish a pronoun policy. So everyone knows to call you to, to use they, them pronouns for you. And Aff is like, wow, that really makes me feel like welcome here. And so there's this like 
established tension between NPCs established that are on Jamie's side um, and Sasha, who just like recently, like in that same scene, brushed off Jamie. But like the school papers never mentioned again after that point. You know, it's it's very much a lot of this setup that doesn't come to fruition. Well, can we would it be fair to read the first half up to the point where the mic drops or the the beat drops? Mm -hmm. Would it be fair to read that as like, okay, they played slice of life for a while. And then they like crammed an episode of Buffy into the last 45 minutes. So basically, and this is also Fiona's thesis, what you're describing is a shonen anime. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, all right. But you know, like this, this, this kind of deviates from the point because I think at the end of the day, what we're looking at, and I think the bigger question, as you mentioned a while ago, is what does the interaction of an actual play like Critical Role do with an ostensibly indie work like Monster Hearts? Because the first thing we have to look at is that we've already covered this last time, that Critical Role is known for its coverage. It's almost exclusively 5e, right, Vi? That's that's definitely correct. Exactly. Even when they do and like honey, um, and yes, hilariously, I think it is <laughs> 5e, and then second place with a order of magnitude fewer is Honey Heist. Even when they're doing like brand tie-ins with like Elden Ring and Doom, it's 5e. Okay, so that's the first thing that we're actually looking at here, which is that when they do 5e, I think the 5e, at least from what I remember from watching Critical Role back in the day it still felt more or less sensible, probably because you can see a comfort level with the nature of the game and the kind of material the game covers. So when you look at D&D, you look at like a lot of combat, there are role-playing beats, there are role-playing moments, but you don't actually elicit emotional responses. There are no explicit emotional responses that are systematized into that game. Like, you can't turn someone on in D&D, right? There's no explicit hubba-hubba move, right? Right, right. You, well, I think that, like, the distinction would be that you, like, you can, but, but definitely there is not a systemization of it. Yeah, it's not written into the text per se. And then you have that in Monster Hearts, where Monster Hearts prides itself, I believe, in making the game feral. And that's not a that's not a power quote there. That is literally one of the instructions of the GM to make the game, oh, the writer rather, to make the game feral. And so I guess my first question to all of you is, do we feel like that admonition or that request to make the game feral, did it really happen here? Like by the nature of Critical Role actual play, trying to do Monster Hearts, were they able to do that first thing, which is to make the game feral? I one of the things that really stood out to me regarding that question was that um, when you're watching a YouTube video, you can use like a number pad, like the, the the on your keyboard, to skip to like a percentage of the way through the video. So like one is ten percent, etc. And I switched between like ninety percent of the way through and ten percent of the way through. And you can see on we, we talked about it last time, like the the elaborate looking uh, setups that each character has, each player has in front of them of the strings they have on NPCs and each other. There's like these custom magnets um, and almost nothing changes between the very end and the very beginning 
Like very few strings are spent. It's like there's even one part where one of the players says, I'm catching up to you um, to, to describe how they're gaining more strings. Like it's kind of a high score. So I think if the question is if they, if they use the mechanics of the game to drive the story in a feral direction, um, I don't think they used the game in that way, no. Right. Like, let's just quote directly from the Monster Hearts book, page 10. Keep the story feral. The conversation that you have with other players and with the rules create a, sto- a story that couldn't have existed in your head alone. This is part of talking to the MC. So as you play, you might feel an impulse to, to domesticate that story. You form an awesome plan for exactly what could happen next and where the story could go. In your head, it's a spectacular, it's spectacular rather. All you'd need to do is dictate what the other player should do, ignore the dice once or twice, and force your idea into existence. In short, you have to take control. The game loses its magic when any one player attempts to take control of the story. It becomes small enough to fit inside one person's head. The other players turn into audience members instead of participants. Nobody's experience is enriched when one person turns the collective conversation into their own private story. Hmm. And I mean, I'm I'm not hmm. I'm not one to defend the way Monster Hearts goes about patronizing its reader, but uh, I don't think if if like that's the golden standard, that is not to, to my reading what Critical Role does. In fact, we can point to that moment where it transforms from slice of life or whatever into, you know, the last 40, the, into a Buffy episode as exactly the moment where Matt Mercer says, no, we're going to do this thing, which is exactly what the book, what, what the passage you just read says not to do. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's the, the one player saying, here's the story. And it's kind of how I, would you think, do you think then this would have worked off better as like, say, a multi-episode arc, which would have given them more room as opposed to a one episode arc of? Well, I think, I, I mean, and this is me kind of um, stealing some things that we've, we've talked about previously. But I, I think that the one central issue here is that they are, they're professionals, they're adults, and they're playing this game in public for entertainment. And I I think there's an amount of, if we're going to take that passage at face value from the book, there's an, you have to be prepared to fail or to have some kind of, you know, you've got to be ready to jump off the cliff, right? There's the, the leap to faith element in there. And I don't think that's something that they can really functionally do as performers in the space that, that they're set up in. Right. So I, I just think it's, it's at odds with what they're trying to do or what they have to do in order to like keep their audience happy and make sure that their format is, is functional. Do you think it's, it's partly to blame the, the one shot format or, or do you think like our, our broader frame, do you think well, it's part of actual play? I, I'm gonna, I hate one shots. I don't understand how one shots function and I don't like them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so like, I don't, I don't really, I don't think the, the nature of it being a one shot helped at all, but I don't think even if they did, if they did this for nine months, right. If they, if they switched every piece of their content from 5e to monster hearts, I don't think the, the, the reality of doing an AP show on the internet would allow them to really broach the kind of vulnerability that the text of monster hearts, like, 
<laughs> in it, without minced words demands of its players for better wow. or worse let's talk about then the moment that we felt was the most feral but personally i found the most uncomfortable well actually i did have one point oh right? go ahead it's a counterintuitive one and i think it furthers jared point jared's point right um i forgot how a possessive works for a second there <laughs> um, that's how my brain's going today but right okay so there's the bit where i think this is going to sound unkind and I don't mean it this way. Matt seems like a DM who plans a lot. Really, he plans things. His NPCs have notes. They've got lines set up. I think he, or he's better at improv than I expect most people to be. Either way, right? Like there's the kind of like woke try hardish jock character that he has that I think mm-hmm. is not really him trying to poke fun by punching down, but to create a thing that is parodic and subversive right like i don't think it succeeds right like i don't think it works well on Mm. the level of i get the joke right no joke is funny if it's explained but right like the joke is that the person isn't wrong they're just trying to defend someone that doesn't need their advocacy and they're being condescending Mm. right i think a lot of people from basically queer experience can relate to like that is what a savior type is like i think across most groups of queer people um speaking on a podcast where i think all of us in some way count um you know um (laughs) Mm -hmm. if you think i'm wrong you know tell me i'm wrong right like and i think the problem is it's toothless because in some ways it's a bit of a parody of an excessive celebrity performance of like pseudo solidarity that very much is just, it's, it's something that people basically already get, you know, it's, it's not a new hat. It's not really, you know, trying to like shock the world. I don't think that that's his intention or what he wants to do. Right. Like to be clear on like role-playing terms, a reason that I don't really do AP is that I like playing dark characters, right? Like I, I like going dark. I like dark tone. I don't think it's appropriate for entertainment. I think it would be weird for an audience to enjoy some things, right? Like, mm. well, you know, Fiona, it depends on the audience, right? I mean, well, there is no, a market I mean, like, for that. Just how do you well, regulate no, I, it? Well, you know, I have, interests in a lot of sorts of filmmaking and etc right like there's a lot of things that get into human beings have flinch points right like violence has a flinch point there's a reason that like 5e on a whole doesn't run combat where you describe things like someone with a broken bone screaming and begging you to kill them right it, it breaks with the tone definitely it's really wrong for the tone People begging for the mercy of death or dying of dehydration are against the tone of 5e. Or at least the specific tone of what Critical Role does with it. Yeah. Right? Like they've they've done a lot of work to build up a specific audience that's looking for a specific set of things, and they're willing to go a certain distance away from that when something like Monster Hearts comes up. But I just don't think they're they're set up to do the kinds of things that the book seems to be pointing at. Mm. Yeah, like, I don't think they're going to do self-exploration where, like, someone asks sort of, like, fairly, I don't know what this character is going to do. And, like, potentially they do something that, as a person who exists in media, could decontextualizingly damage your reputation, right? Like, Mm. 
I have a question that after that would play a casually prejudiced character, even though exploring prejudice is one of the things that's suggested as a thing, but also why there's a bunch of safety tools, right? Because it would be hard for him to play it well, right? Like, I think Matt Mercer would look as viscerally as uncomfortable as he did with the idea of, I'm an adult cop flirting with a teenager. Mm. <laughs> um, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Right? Like, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's the same thing, right? Like, I he couldn't make it authentic because I think it would get into, he just doesn't want to do those things. It would be unpleasant. It's not his brand. I don't think he's well-suited to it. And also, it the version that he'd be able to portray would be kind of meaningless. It's like an after-school special bully is not really a functional portrayal of bullying on the level of right. The psychology of bullying isn't just someone who's weaker than most people and preys on weaker people. It's a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, people just wouldn't do things like that. Right, you know, right. It's why after school special is used as a dismissal. Sorry, this was me running a bit long. It's no, 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 no. Though it does, it does. I think lead to this interesting question, which is like, do APs sanitize necessarily the games that they're in or that they're using, or do we see a trend where people would rather just pick games which, in and of themselves, are already sanitary? are sanitized to begin with so that you don't run into these kinds of trouble or these kinds of issue when you start performing live in front of everyone for people to see. Mm. Yeah. It feels a little bit like a chicken and egg situation to me. Like there's an amount of, I'm sure there's, you know, you could make an audience, you could build an audience on the back of super edge Lord, whatever, like anything you wanted. Yeah, like, um, but it's going to be more work to do that. And it's specifically not what critical role has done. You know what I mean? Mm. So there's like, there, there's, it's probably much easier in general um, to play, to play it pretty clean, you know, mm-hmm. and friendly. Um, and, and it's already such a difficult market for anyone other than critical role that I doubt, um, I doubt very many, actual play podcasts or actual play shows in general are really in a position to mm-hmm. um, capitalize on it. There's, okay. there's like two, two moments that stand out to me. Um, there's one that's in the episode and one that applies to AP more broadly, which is that like, I think, and, and you all correct me if, if I'm wrong, because I have uh, minimal experience with Powered by the Apocalypse games, but um, I do have lots of friends that, whether it's, you know, inside a tabletop game or not, are into role-playing. Mm-hmm. And um, there's this thing that I've I've heard is, is healthy for PBTA games, and seems like it could be um, going uh, in the direction of monster hearts advice of not conforming to one person's vision where um you kind of you you understand there's a moment where there will be consequences right and and there's a kind of out of character negotiation of like oh what would be most interesting or what like direction might this go um and i'm just imagining i'm imagining the television show whose line is it anyway uh, whose line was it anyway um And I can't imagine, uh, like, you know, to say, like, improv show to improv show. I can't imagine them stopping in the middle of a live performance in front of their studio audience to say, oh, okay, what, right now, this seems like it's a funny moment. Which way do you think this would go? You know? 
It's a it's a live <laughs> yeah. performance. That's kind of unthinkable. Yeah, like no one goes up to Hamlet and like in the first act actually just, you know, stabs the king. <laughs> just breaks with everything and brought a non-prop sword is a real go-getter and says like, no, I'm inaugurating I am Hamlet. <laughs> oh, um, please don't ever do that, anyone. <laughs> no, no. You know, like, I mean, all I think maybe our summary here would be that, yes, actual play does affect the method and the means and the representation of play, largely because we, I think we've hinted at it, but rather just like, I should just outright play it and say, like, the fact that you know you're being watched changes how you play the game. Yeah. Right, yeah, right. You're a human being that exists in public, but also I think all performances sanitize, right? Like, it's the effect of, right, like, there's content that can work in certain mediums, right, that I think relies on the staging of performance, mm. right? Like, I think one reason certain themes are very poorly suited to role-playing games, and this isn't me being a prude really about content, is just, right, like, people that perform, like, you know, that sort of content generally do in a very closed set with a very small number of people for like larger amounts of money than AP people do mm. like end of the day. Right. Like that's just a sort of, I think thing of like, right. In, in method acting is considered a bad met like acting method. Right. Right. Because it's basically inducing what story gamers call bleed right you confuse to some degree the division between yourself and a role by confusing the difference between your own memory of an emotion and your characters so that you can perform a scene mm. i have a i have a somewhat related um topic or question so i've 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 started thinking about because we've we've we're sort of touching here on this idea of how true was critical role to the to the text of monster mm. hearts and i it got me sort of asking myself well how true are they normally to the text of 5e and i don't know the answer to that question maybe vi has some input on that but i'd imagine they're not like especially knowing a little bit about 5e um i imagine they're not like playing it super close to the book is that fair vi yeah, so I think that's the kind of um, question at, that's at the heart of playing a tabletop game, which is that, like, I, you know, for example, without going too far off topic, I've been thinking a lot about the boundaries that are drawn by board games and thinking about 5e in a kind of board gamey sense, you kind of have a book full of combat rules and that's commonly leveraged as a critique like oh you know critic you know if we if we like count up the rules in 5e it's like 95% combat rules and 5% everything else so it's a combat game mm. so in that sense critical role very much um does not play it close to the book yeah you'd be correct yeah, i think that's a good framing so if we look at these texts as um authoritative in the way that say a, a board game rules book is mm. um then i think it, it sounds like it would be fair to say that uh, critical role likely pays as as much uh fealty to the 5e text as they do to the monster hearts text in this particular one shot yeah yeah so what's interesting to me is i don't think that exonerates them in any way right so the the question becomes 
does Critical Role have a bigger responsibility to the text of Monster Hearts? And if so, why? Right? Because I can think of some reasons why we might sort of criticize them for not hewing more to the book of Monster Hearts than they do to the text of 5e. One being that this is an indie game. And there's mm. there's an amount of like, um, they're, they're <laughs> the fact that they may or may not be bringing uh, 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 exposure to D and D fifth edition is irrelevant, right? <laughs> but yeah. it's very much relevant in the case of Monster Hearts, or at least a lot more so. Um, so then, that perhaps is one reason why we might say that they should um, maybe ethically uh, hew a little bit closer to the book. Um, another would be that maybe, and this is where we get into system matters, so I'm just going to drop this and, and let y'all take it. Um, another might be that Monster Hearts is a kind of game where you're supposed to hew closer to the book, right? It's a game that needs that from players or expects it or demands it or whatever formulation you want there. Does that ring true for anyone? Either of those? Any Any of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's why there's the, I guess, recurring emphasis where we maybe haven't articulated it that way, right, of, and I think it's also the the point you make about the demands of the text, right, like, Monster Hearts, more than 5e, right, as a game which basically says, right, like, hey, you want to play a role-playing game, you've maybe envisioned some sort of grand adventure, you know, this is a book to teach you how to have a grand adventure, this is the world's greatest role-playing game. I haven't read the fifth edition rulebook for more than six years. There's the sort of um, Monster Hearts assumes you've played a role-playing game, right? On some level, it does have a what is a role-playing game to some degree, but it has also kind of the thing I always call like the essays to it, right? Which are in some ways like suggestions about how you're supposed to use a set of rules and in some way like principles for how you're supposed to adapt the rules. And I think that might be forgic thought on Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> uh, this is going to become a recursion. And bring him back to season <laughs> one. This is just a shonen anime in which we establish our <gasps> characters and just walk towards a pointless horizon in which we're going to have to bleach someone's hair and then we actually just <laughs> Matt Mercer at podcast. We'll, we'll battle Forgic Thought in season 13 eventually after hyping it up for so long. I mean, that could be our <laughs> next one. Who would you date? Horse Girl Matt Mercer or Bleach Blonde Tips Matt Mercer? <laughs> <laughs> Matt Mercer about to go Super Saiyan on this GMing. Are you ready for a fucking cult, guys? So it, it, when we're talking about staying true to Monster Hearts as a text, there's the question of like what it's trying to get you to do. Because there's two interesting moments. Because, like, as a Powered by the Apocalypse game, I think it's trying to push you toward those complicated successes or complicated failures, right? And there's two moments that happen at the rave, which I think the rave is kind of the most interesting part. There's the, there's a lot of things that, that change in dynamic at the rave, I think. Um, and there are two moments in it that stand out to me regarding Monster Hearts as a rules text. And the first one is when, oh, let me pull up my notes. <laughs> I mean, in terms of 
the fan videos of it, right? Like it's mostly flirting stuff from the rave and like character work, right? Like, and I do think everyone did get good lines there because I think this is a more critical episode, right? In terms of one-liners, everyone did great. Fuck yeah. There's, there's at the rave, there's, um, there's one moment where Sasha rolls plus hot, um, I I believe uh, to turn on Amy Cam's tutor because Sasha's on like a, a rampage causing trouble, which is awesome. Um, and it's established in the fiction that Cam is watching this happen. Um, and then the role happens and they realize it's a complicated success. It's like a seven to nine, right? And they, re- they decide that the complication is that Cam sees it happen, but he already had been watching like, so it's kind of a question of like, okay, what's that? And then later on, um, Sasha once again is rolling to turn on Cam this time. And it's the exact opposite. It flips the other way. And um, what happens is that they, they're like making out and there's, you know, um, I don't know how specific we want to get, but there's, it's insinuated that he's like, you know, heavy petting, whatever we want to call it. Um, (laughs) I grew up in Utah. Please excuse my, my (laughs) terrible sex education. Um, and, uh, and then Amy sees that interaction. But the thing is that they rolled a 10, like Sasha rolled a 10. So there should not have been a complication, but there was still a narrative complication because, and like, I think that's a feral moment where it's like, oh, let's make this more complicated because I think, you know, we're talking about the mechanics of the game. It's pushing you toward a kind of complicated success. And so there's like, they were already, you know, it, it, it's kind of a question of, I've been thinking a lot about how much a rules text is kind of like a, a paint by numbers reference guide, right? And so in that way, it's like, okay, Monster Hearts is pushing you toward a certain genre with complicated successes. And in that text, and like, I mean, I'm sorry, it's like through that frame, I think that the episode, they like, in those moments, especially those two moments specifically, where they like, they didn't really need the rules to tell them to make success complicated, and they didn't really need the rules to tell them to do the genre. And they were they did both by themselves. And that's kind of a question of like as professional AP like um players, like they, they were already kind of pushing themselves in that direction. And so whether or not they hewed closely to the text, they kind of demonstrated what it's going for to a degree. I mean Is that what it means to be feral though, to have complications? Mm-hmm. Or I, I think at least, right, like, this maybe gets to how much should this be close, right? Like, I think there's a broad range of things that could be considered feral, right? Because the text is not so prescriptive that there's a part where Avery says the following th- checklist must be followed or it's feral or not feral, right? Like, it, it is an essay, it is a vibe. Um, we've previously covered, right, like, there is limits to what they can do both in good taste and in terms of like their audience or the ability to have that sort of uncertainty. Right. And that they're media aware people, right. Like they're probably not gonna do like bad consent things on the level of played as bad consent, bad consent. Right. Like 
whatever. I'm just trying to use the most tasteful language I can, right? Like, I could right. certainly say worse things, but like... Like, but you're talking about like a kind of player uncertainty and, and Mahar, is that what you're talking about with ferality or? With yeah, because there's those two tensions, right? There's the uncertainty of outcome. There's the uncertainty of where the story is going. There's the uncertainty of what like a player is going to do. And those mm-hmm. things are supposed to intersect. And that's what I take from the essays, right? And why they say like, look, here's some kind of taboo themes, right? But like, you should be safe around taboos, right? Like, I think that's good advice, yeah but like that's also i think the thing of right like i don't think anyone tuned into that to see people explore taboos well Mm. yeah like maybe because when i think about feral i think of things that haven't been tamed yet which often means subject matter that hasn't been discussed so not necessarily just taboos though i think taboos are deeply a part of that but really like the whole notion that certain topics seem shut and closed already so when you do something feral you're opening a topic that no one really knows the answer to and now you need to engage the topic which is a wild there's a wildness to it because you don't know the answer mm. and and um, that's where i kind of go like when we look at when we look at a lot of the you know, when we look at the interactions today between Erika Ishii's character, Sasha, and the cops, like, the, you know, like the cop, I think that was in the first cop scene where they're having an interview at home. That's right. right. Yeah. They, were all, they were all like finding out who had been to the rave. And of course, yeah. who had been hanging on the quarry and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Well, it was, um, I mean, I, of questionable importance. The police were coming because Cameron's dad owns the quarry. And mm-hmm. so, and then they were going to take both of the kids in for questioning, I think, because they were out late. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that is the, the, the crux of the moment where then Cameron mm-hmm. went to the garage and, and yeah. um, Sasha encountered the policeman on the, yes. the and doorstep that's, and that's where you start looking at i think the most feral moment which is that what no one is saying at this point in time is that this is a moment where you had to acknowledge that this is a person coming to grips with the fact that they have sexual power even when society says they should not have any because mm. she's underage right and mm-hmm. then the idea that a young person could ha- somehow have power through the use of their bodies to make an authority figure equal to them. That's a very feral, dangerous topic, right? Like when you think about it, like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? And, I, and you could really see it on Mercer's face. He was like, <laughs> uh, uh, like, you could see it. Like you could see the internal alarm bells ringing and you could see him like stammering out what to do. So, yes. So it's like, I'm not saying by any means that we should encourage that kind of behavior, but it's something that, um, it's something that people need to like acknowledge as well, that that's what made the story feral. And I think that is why AP is not able to do that because with all respect, with respect to Erica Ishii, that was, I think, really good role playing because it elicited such a discussion and such an, an such a reaction. But mm-hmm. wow, like AP, I think, is not the place to really explore that, especially since that that action requires so much unpacking after the fact. 
and we we remember the timeline here. This was February. This is a Valentine's episode of 2020. This is the last of pre-COVID whatever passes for normal. And if, you know, like eight months later, <laughs> this would not have been an episode, right? I, I think eight months later, there'd have been a standards and practices meeting, which mm. would say, okay, we need to avoid the following things. We need to make sure whatever. And, right? Like, and this is, I think, one of Critical Role's last live actual plays as well because we've mentioned last time they also became more of a pre-filmed right a pre-recorded release mm-hmm. uh, a schedule and maybe that's also why it, it came that way so that's that is something really um yeah it's like it even now i feel uncomfortable talking about it and that is a that's an indicator of what the game can do, but wh- what that says about the game and how to approach the game is something that I think every table and every group needs to have as a conversation for themselves. Because the last thing I would like to see happen is some kind of redux of the satanic panic where they're now going to say RPGs are responsible for ex-immoral behavior. Right. Right? So, like, that's that's kind of where I'm coming from. And it's, I kind of appreciate that moment for what it is because we're now having this very difficult conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's... And I think that's what Feral is supposed to do. Is this... Would you say this is a kind of extension... We talked briefly last time about how we're not as as viewers we're not really um i think it'd be odd to expect a negotiation of like personal identity like of of like whether or not the players themselves are trying to explore whether or not they themselves are queer is as a kind of but does is that a kind of like similar ferality like in the way that we might not expect that on screen. And that is kind of the same ferality of like saying this, these, these difficult questions of teens and, and whether or not they can express their sexuality in a certain way. Like they're both these difficult questions. I'm, I'm kind of struggling to explain this, but in the same way that that is um, maybe akin to the same difficulty of exploring whether oneself is queer like is that are these the kind of questions that monster hearts is evoking i mean yes and no right like avery does write in the book where it's this is this game is queer so the game is already Mm -hmm. labeled in text as as a queer game Mm, so mm, true so if you're playing it (laughs) so if you're playing it it's like you know, I, I don't know what it means. So it's it I think that's something that you need to figure out on your own. I don't I think it's meant to trigger conversations. Mm. I don't think it's meant to like be the replacement for therapy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like please. You know clear up the like, you know, exploring type stuff. I don't think it's meant to be like I want to role play a scenario to see, you know, what, but more like the queer idea is just like theoretically the idea that you could end up with a situation where you're like, this challenges my notion of what my character identifies as or what I consider to be straight behavior or whatever. Which is in the text. That's, that's, that is text. 
yeah. in Monster Hearts. Thank you, Jared. Oh. That was good catch. See, Avery's really thorough with those essays. Yeah, I mean that's that's a I believe that's the oh. move in the move description oh. for turn someone on that that you might be turned on by something you wouldn't choose to be turned on by kind of deal. Hmm. Would we say that Monster Hearts maybe like are we leading up to this idea that Monster Hearts is maybe a bad fit for Critical Role? Like, is that what's going on here? I think so. I mean, on the level of right, like both. I think where the players best were able to do the things that right were what I'd say are most true to the vision of the text, which I I right have stated previously on the show system doesn't matter it just gets in the way of the players um (laughs) it it's a box that exists in your head no one had a copy of the book on them to check for if they understood the rules they just had a reference sheet right were the moments where it most from the standpoint of an ap right if i were a producer of some sort of it i would be most concerned about the production Mm. right on the level of right like we mentioned right like I don't think they pre-planned things, right? Like, I do think this was improv, for real, right? Like, I'm not accusing them of having a work, right? Matt Mercer seems genuinely surprised by it. And on some level, you can kind of see it going through his head, like, the optics, right? Or how he wants to approach this character, you know, or this response. Right. Because it could... Right, like, I forget. The Adam Koble thing is before this, right? I believe so. Oh, man, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I'll I go with that. 100% know what, like, they cleared, right? Like, there is the thing of, right, like, I think a lot of people playing games like this do the, like, oh, whatever happens, happens. And then don't really think of, like, what that could mean, right? Like, it is why I think those kind of pedantic essays are necessary. Mm. But, like... Also, most people don't have to do that in front of a live-ish audience, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's real, right? Like, I think all of that is real, and I don't know if I have much of a conclusion. In a lot of weird ways, I thought saying, oh, let's do, like, this Monster Hearts critical role thing would be, like, a little bit more goofy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it turns out it's it's pretty it's pretty serious topic, pretty serious business. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's it's... I mean, when you look more general to it, like, it's almost like the strength of an AP is becoming a new requirement with which to penetrate the market. Yeah. Like, it's, we're, I think it's going to become the new thing. I think, it's, I think it's already happening. I think that many people are seeing that if a game is played by enough famous Twitch people they're going to want to try the game out. They're going to be really interested in how the game works out. They're going to try it themselves for good or ill. They're going to model their gaming practices after what they see on these APs, which I think will beg the question. I, I, I don't want this to happen, but I think it could happen where you're going to have designers start designing to think that their stuff is to be performed in person. We saw that with Quest. I, I think I can think of one game that specifically built itself that way. I mean, when we get down to the next part of our our so-called structure, we need to talk about, I think, AP as an intellectual exercise. Because when you get down to it, 
because I think we've already talked about the limitations of AP with text. But I think mm. we're now mm. entering this whole notion of what does it mean to create and play a game within the context of AP. And when you get down to it, AP is very much an intellectual exercise. And I don't mean it like an academic exercise. I mean one in the sense that it requires quite a lot of brain power to engage in. Good AP requires smart people. And this is not to say that you need to be a nerd to do it, but you need to think very quickly on your feet. You need to be willing to take risks right then and there. You need to know how to perform. You need to know how to look to the camera. You need to, there's a, there are multiple skill sets required in AP, which is unsurprising that we see the most successful AP of all being done by trained actors, <laughs> right? So mm-hmm. that's, that's really important. And, and that's the thing. Like when we see AP as an intellectual exercise, it also means that it's seen as best practices because it looks like people thought through it. It means that people are using what they identified in the past as what works with audiences and what works for themselves. So all mm. of these intellectual decisions are being made. Like what makes for a good joke? What makes what what resonates with humor? What's going to be our plot? What's going to be exciting to watch? What's going to be dangerous? There's a lot of directorial, dare I say, dramaturgical intent. And that's why Matt Mercer, I think, gives quite a lot of the impression of being a super prepared GM. So that then begs the question, like, if they are acting in an intellectual capacity, are we necessarily, one, benefiting from that? Are we ourselves learning something that makes us think more? Or are we, are we getting something that is misrepresentative? And thus, when we start shaping our thought around play, we are shaping our thought around something that may resemble the system or the product, but not actually what the product is saying. And then we have this dissociation, which causes quite a lot of like tension within within the RPG space, because now we're wondering, and sometimes it's weird where you find people rules lawyering and you say it brings in the old like, but that's a homebrew thing. That's only what they did. They're not playing the real version of the game. And, right. and so like now... We, I think, as consumers, need to ask ourselves when I see something like Cinderbrush, okay, is am I should I just take it at face value, which I think 95% of the world would, and that's there's t- totally nothing wrong with that. Or am I meant to dissect this and isolate practice and recognize it for what it is, for what it was in that moment of time? Which then does that also in turn kill the game and kill one's enjoyment of a game? So it's all these it's all these things and basically I guess Yeah, lo- it's a really it's a really interesting question cuz basically what we're what what you're getting at here is like what is AP even? You know what I mean? Like is it is it a radio play? You know, like is that cuz it it's not the same as if I were sitting in in the room as an observer of a group of people playing an RPG even those same people, like if I if I walked into a private room where they were playing an RPG just themselves, for themselves, it wouldn't be the same thing. I think that's like demonstrably true, right? Oh God, Jared. Mm-hmm. Jared, you know what you just asked right now, right? You're basically now <laughs> saying we're going to engage in a phenomenology of AP. Yeah, I'm, I'm asking an ontological question. What is the nature of the beingness of AP? <laughs> Well, here, no. wait, I've, got my answer. I've got my answer, and it solves all of this, right? 
look, the medium is the message, right? Like, and I realize that that is going to sound a number of ways. And also, if you can do a stinger where you play the opening notes of O oh, Canada and then Matt Mercer saying, roll a hot check, it might help me <laughs> to someday emigrate to a different country. Um, so, you know, sup to Canada, but also, um, <laughs> right. <laughs> The, the medium is the message because, right, like, AP isn't just, it isn't just podcasting or Twitch streaming, right? Like, it isn't just a performance of games. Even the idea of format, right, like, exists in some way around the idea of a camera, mm. right? Like, there are not a lot of things I'm a qualified person in. Uh, being pretentious about film and filmic things is one of them. There is the real thing that, like, Actual play is always, in many ways, like, the best comparison I could make is, right, at risk of making this a more adult show, even though I think we already have the Spotify age lock, um, is, uh, look, it's like pornography to sex. It's a staged performance of something that's to look like something for a consuming audience that maybe looks like a thing, but it isn't the thing. It's the thing that media studies talks about constantly, it is simulacra and simulacra. Yeah, it's a hyper real right? like, version of play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it is both a totemic performance and like they are really playing the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My question think- is, do you think people are conscious of that? Both as a producer of AP and as a consumer of it? I mean, the paradox would be that like they could only do that if there is a concept of it that exists, right? Like it, it's the thing of a meme, Right. Like for me to do pretentious French media theory for a second. Right. The the meme consumed both <laughs> like play and Matt Mercer. And then the two of them became a dialectical synthesis, like where you see the like need for an authoritarian leader is hidden. In, no, I'm kidding. But right. Like for real. Right. Like the the fucking like memetic nature of it is that like. Matt Mercer responds to a larger audience than just his own personal tastes, right? Like he is a media professional. I might sound like I mean that as an insult and I mean it as both a compliment and as an insult, right? Like I, uh, it it is (laughs) right. Like it's like a polished performance is a polished performance. Mm -hmm. There's no denying it. Right. But like, that's, I think one of the things, right? Like he is, a brand at the point that he is on a camera. He is also a real person who I believe has real feelings. And like any of my criticisms are not directed against Matt Mercer, the real person, right? Like in every way, Matt Mercer on Twitter is even just a concept of Matt Mercer, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's a real thing. I I think that there's a thing that I've been dwelling on and I think it's, um, it is kind of Mimi and internet E. Um, and so Jared, tell me if this is properly ontological, but like (laughs) regarding this question, I, I, I think I, I like, I've got primarily through critical role itself, this like three pronged definition of, of like what an actual play is. And so, so the first part, is a kind of like, um, like, like the misleading infomercial in the kind of way of like, you know, pornography to sex, where we talk about it's, it's kind of ideally performed. And then it's that, 
and the second one is like play where it's like improv storytelling that's kind of the the stage radio play of it and the third one is blorbo um and blorbo <laughs> come again <laughs> you know uh blorbo um <laughs> from my shows um <laughs> So, <laughs> so Blorbo from my shows is an internet phenomenon of a person who is, um, it, it's, it's your favorite character from a TV show. And I think that this is what Fiona stumbled upon. We mentioned early in, in this episode where it was, um, the, the kind of, uh, extra textual media, like the fan made videos of like, Oh, this character and these lines, you know, like the, my you know favorite moments. And it was the one liners and, and the character beats. Uh. That's, that's the Blorbo angle. And I kind of wonder if like, when we talk about synthesizing, um, actual play as, um, you know, a performance of the text in a kind of uh, ideal way, whether that's, um, you know, in this case, whether it's not adhering to the book very closely or whether it is mixed with like, you know, friends sitting on a table mixed with um, Lorbo. Um, if we see like, you know, it, uh, if, if people watch this episode and they're like, oh, I want to be like Af, I want to be the werewolf. I want to like play a character with anger issues. And they see that and they're like, oh, I like that character. I like the way that Af was portrayed and I like, and I, and I get the, the instinct, the impulse that like, if I play monster hearts and I play the werewolf, I can kind of replicate that in a way. Okay. Um, hear me out. Hear me go out. Go for it. Go for it. So basically what you're laying down for me right now. And I love this <laughs> is where, when you take, something like monster hearts or five E I think five E is actually a more pointed example, but when you take an RPG text and you push it through the meat grinder of AP, mm-hmm. what you get on the other side is like a sonic OC generator, right? So it's, it's this like thing. <laughs> it's this instant yes. fandom that people can participate in. Right. And so they you're, they're basically like the, the audience is is functionally investing in what are literally OCs. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, and then yes. all they have to do to make their own is exactly the same thing. The people they watched, at least theoretically, exactly the same thing. The people they watched d- do what they did. Right. There's like this text that tells you with with instructions for how to make your your own Sonic o- OC. Yeah. Yeah, like and I've this seen- is, so this is this gets into a larger thing that's not super relevant mm. that that is like really fascinating to me. I think Fiona and I have talked about this a good bit, but like Homestuck is a good example. Um, also, My Little Pony is a good example. These are pieces of media that either knowingly or not have structured themselves in such a way that OC creation is very easy. Um, because in both cases, like with the trolls in Homestuck and with My Little Pony ponies, mm-hmm. what you've got are characters that are basically entirely they're they're identical. Like their their baseline structure is identical, and then you just draw like funny shit on them. Right. So if you can draw one, you can draw any of them. Kind of deal. Um, and then they're also personality wise, they're like big cartoon cutouts, like cardboard cutouts, cartoony stuff. Um, so it's just like this ready-made thing for creating an OC and RPGs were kind of always that 
Right? Yeah, like I've had, yeah, I've had people play like basically a Grog Strongjaw clone from Critical Role, like a barbarian, a, a Goliath barbarian, etc. And so if we, you know, like, so if you think that like Af is like non-binary Angerishti's werewolf OC, then then yes, absolutely, hundred percent. Interesting. I don't, I don't know how super relevant that is to our conversation, but yeah, that, I glommed onto that immediately. That seems super relevant, right? Because, like, I guess that's kind of the interesting thing is, right, like, and I mean this is, again, going back to the medium is the message and the message is, to some degrees, a meme, right? Like, Critical Role is monetized a bunch of ways. They all exist. I don't mean this to disparage them, right? Like, they do the ways that their show is produced to do the things that their show means to. And the way that the show is promoted to some degree is its own mimetic quality, right? Like Mm. it, I don't mean self-consciously on the level of, I think it's inauthentic, but self-consciously on the level of wanting to give a good performance is doing this right. Like have some good one-liners, which is, I feel like on the point Jared made last show of like, there's, bits where people kind of do the thing that I, everyone does, I think in D and D of like, you do give the joke answer. And then you, and the DM starts like being like, okay, well you just insulted the person. Like, no, no, I don't say that. And then you move on. But like, they're just always in character stance. Yeah. They just keep it. It's wild. Yeah. That's very normal. And like, I don't know where this is going other than right. Like I think ferality doesn't make for good memes. Right. Like there's something vulnerable or sincere or uncomfortable, right? Or maybe the things that are broadly considered cringe. Well, also, I think when we start talking about stuff, uh, now that we're talking about it in terms of OCs and like my Sonic OC generator 2006, I think it's there's a level of detachment inherent in that. And I think that's part of the the allure of it right is that you get to step you get to step outside of yourself but not into anything in a way you mm. know what i mean where which is very at odds with the kind of role play that i think monster hearts at least at times wants you to do like there there's a specific vulnerability and sincerity like you're saying fiona and also an embodiment that i think monster hearts expects that the text of monster hearts expects of players that is I don't know, maybe at odds with the sort of uh, carefree OC generation angle that, mm. that we're that we're touching on here. Okay, I think like I think Monster Hearts as a game is a game that wants to create queer content. I think that's okay. also stated, and maybe yeah. that's I think that's what's happening here that might not be working so much. That in spite of the fact, I think the cast itself with the exception of mercer is is queer i believe i could be wrong uh but let's assuming that the majority of the cast is actually queer this game did not feel very queer because it was done under the guidance of a cis het male if that makes any sense hmm. so hmm. it's it's almost like you know it's it's how do well, I put this? It's the queer representation debate, right, of, like, the queer content that is appealing to audiences versus the queer content that's realer to queer experience, right? Like yeah, the, there you go. The meme around the time I'm in grad school, right, is, like, 
the L word versus queer as folk type thing of like, right. Like trash lesbians and straight men are kind of the audience of the L word. One watches it to make fun of it and hate the plot. Um, (laughs) And also because there's eye candy, one of them watches it for eye candy. Um, I've seen Will and Grace. Yeah. You know, in some areas it's just edited a bit. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Maybe that's why it doesn't fit. Right. Like, would we say that this was a sincere exploration of queer themes or having queer energy? I would say there are attempts at it, but would I say I think, that? I think there's some pretty surface level attempts at it. Yeah, but it's, there's that, it's almost like, oh my gosh, I don't want to say this. And this is not meant to be condemning or damning. I think this just might be what's happening and it's nothing necessarily wrong with it, but you know how some people claim that we're like a po- we're in a post-label society, and so any content is just content, <laughs> right? Like, you know, it's like it's like the queer equivalent of I don't see race. Oh. So, so, so I don't see queer. It like love is love kind of thing, and I think the problem there is that 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 like. Because you have a, because you have someone who is I I don't know if he's ever had a queer experience like Matt Mercer has or if not, but it's like that's why there's no risk to it because he is giving us heterosexual sanitized attractions, which have been played out so many times before in so much media, and I like with the exception of like horse girl like Amanda being all like stiffening. I mean, <laughs> I think that was right. an accident. That but, was you an, know, I, I think you know that. Uh, look, but, Matt Mercer, you looked good as a flustered, stiffening girl. You did a great yeah, job. Yeah, he, he did. He <laughs> did. Like, but the thing is, do you think that Mercer actually, honestly, um, portrayed that outside of this is what he's heard of? Well, and I so, you know what I mean? It's like it's that's why I just kind of it find it feels so like sanitized and again it goes back to that intellectual exercise is this a representation by means of actual experience or is this representation based on a third party or a third person uh, piece of information which because there, there's a lot more nuance to to a queer interaction and i don't think that is really captured hmm. well it's on god i'm gonna say some grad school shit that is like why i'm no longer in academia right so, right, like, queer utopias is a subject of actual criticism within queer studies, right? Like, cruising utopia is kind of a foundational text. I'm not going to do a whole thing on this. If you want to look this up, like, you can DM me. Um, but, right, like, there's the idea, right, on some levels that, like, queer people wanted a utopia. We wanted a world where we're just free to be ourselves, but, like, Honestly, in many ways, all of our defining traits are not that. And there's the weird thing of most queer media actually has large amounts of horrible stuff just happens just Mm. constantly. A lot of queer humor is actually quite cruel. You know, like, look, gay men of a certain generation really do love that movie where Joan Crawford is just the most abusive mom and yelling no more wire hangers is always a way to get a laugh out of them. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's true <laughs> can't attest <sighs> like you know it's camp 
camp is its own sort of humor. And I think that like also a lot of why going dark and that sort of humor worked just doesn't exist in the same way in a utopia or in a theoretical utopia, right? Like, oh, as, as a queer person who grew up in a rural area, right? Like, no, there wasn't a lot of fucking acceptance. And no, I was not an out person, right? Like, I came out in my 20s. It was still a crime to do all of the things I did. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever people want to judge me about being kind of an edgy or, you know, harsh person. Look, I was a felon for most of my life just because I was sexually active. Like, <laughs> seriously, fuck yourself if you think <laughs> I am a harsh person. Um, but I might not being kind for a second. But right, like, I, I think that there's a thing of like, right, like, a lot of those aesthetics, a lot of that stuff, a lot of sort of like cruel and also like violent and hypersexual humor that I associate with being queer, which is definitely a generational gap because I think young queer people find violence a lot more shocking than I do. Um, mm. I mean, this is why I don't give people film racks anymore. <laughs> For real. <laughs> like, you see, like, when we, we you know, like, all of this. Like the fact that we're going this far for freaking critical role. I mean, like, I swear, like, sometimes I wonder how our minds work that we're now at this point. <laughs> it's like, but, but no, like, the, wait, for real, I don't think, like, Matt Mercer would do a good bathhouse scene. Like, no offense to Matt Mercer, right? I don't think he goes through Pittsburgh on his way to Gen Con. If he does, there is a bathhouse he could visit. Um, oh, it's by my the, God. You know what? It's Matt by the Mercer? Greyhound station. Matt um, Mercer, the gloves been cast. You've been challenged. Let's Yo, see. I will, I, will, I will take him to a, a bathhouse. This yeah, is like not if, what if I expected this episode to be. <laughs> <laughs> but no, honestly, no. I, I, I don't think that that would be appropriate just as a human being. I think it would be weird. I think it would feel a lot like slumming it and or cultural tourism for him in the same way that, you know, gay bars were kind of ruined by straight people going to them. Sorry, straight people. Mm. You ruined everything. Yes, agreed. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, but that this yeah let, let's I mean, well okay so i, I want to like, take a, a step back for a second <laughs> if sorry. if you'll if you'll allow me yeah absolutely. because i think a, i think a lot of this conversation is that uh, specifically around queerness and critical role's ability or inability to you know enact queerness in the playing of monster hearts um it, it's kind of founded on this idea that I don't know. It comes along with this idea that uh, you can play monster hearts wrong. And I think that that makes sense in terms of what we were saying earlier about sort of framing the rule book as an authoritative, as an authoritative text in the same way that like a board game rules book is. Hmm. Um, But I, I don't, I want to be very clear that that's not how I envision games or at least tabletop RPGs. And I don't think they played wrong. Um, Mm. They played in a way that I don't find especially compelling, but we knew that before I watched it. So like, I'm not, I'm not the yardstick here. Um, And in general, I encourage everyone, including critical hearts to disregard every tabletop RPG rules text. They possibly can. Um, I, I think for me, if I have a judgment of what they've done, um, it's that, it just wasn't 
like it, it felt like a product at the end of the day. And I think that's, this is going back to, well, basically a lot of stuff we've talked about. This is like, this is the MySonic Maker 2006. This is the, the issue of like, it's an AP, APs have an audience. It's the issue of being a brand. And I think that is sort of butting up against, in a very interesting way, that's butting up against both what the book is asking them to do and also what I would want them to do as a person who thinks you should disregard books, Hmm. right? So there's just like a, they're, they're in a, (laughs) at least as far as me and the, the book of monster hearts goes critical role is in like a, a man without a country kind of uh, scenario. Um, I'm sure they have their own audience to, to speak to. At the end of the day, I think what, what we're, what we've been looking at largely is that first, yeah, this is like, it is something that I think is unique to AP as a medium where we have to start asking these questions. And I think we're in, we're in a rather exciting time because AP was not something known before. It's this weird intersection of improv and, and system and script as suggested by a text you know, it's, it's, it's basically like, it is a, it's very much, uh, it's very much its own beast that's beginning to manifest right now before us. And I think it'd be interesting in the future if we actually saw more academic um, research into it. I'm not going to do it, mind you. Like, I'm just not. <laughs> Someone that wants to do media studies like, and like talk about this, but like, yeah, I, you know, I'll, I'll gladly be cited in an academic journal in the future. I would love that. Trying to be kind, um, you know. <laughs> it's like, I, you know, I See mean, I try to work is not unkind. Yeah, but you da, know, da, 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 da. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think we, we're already looking at perhaps not so much the uh, not so much the character in which AP is being done and what's what it's doing to our industry, what it's doing to the to the conversations. I think we're actually entering right now where we're in this really different space where we now need to define not just the activity itself. So please, I I if someone wants to do a phenomenology of actual play, fine, go ahead. Um, <laughs> let you be it, not us. Um, I, I don't have a PhD in media studies, for example. Um, But I think the other thing we can also look at is we are now actually looking into the ethics of what it means to use your mind in public, even if it's for something as simply creative as playing a role-playing game in public. Mm. I think that's where we're at right now. And as I think this also speaks to how role-playing games are also moving beyond hack and slash and spellcasty and even like you know, cyberpunk or whatever genre you have there, the, the more the games become cognizant of how complicated the world is and how complicated narratives can be, I think the more the more we're going to have these discussions when we start performing those cultural texts. So, like, if we're going to put a cultural studies hat in it, what we're seeing right now is we're looking at the development of a text as it's been informed by other subtexts and contexts and thus, we now need to read literature. We need, now need to read this AP as a growing body of literature. And that's the really odd thing, because can you call it literature when it's improvised? And that's, hmm. I think, an exciting place to be at when we're, in, in, at least with, from the academic point of view, which is what this podcast is presumably all about. <laughs> oh, we do have the mailbag. 
We actually oh, do. Yeah. Mail. So we have we have mailbag questions. Ding 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 ding. Air horns. Mailbag. <laughs> and can we just Love say that because this has been such a monster hearts focused thing, we spell mail M A I L. <laughs> mailbag. No, this is actually like a scrotum descends from the ceiling to make it explicitly queer and then opens and drops all the questions on us. Um, oh my God. But we this just is... don't have the production budget to make that. Well, we're not, we're not critical <laughs> we have role. Production budget of zero. We, we don't have uh, we don't have middle school interns. <laughs> middle, sorry. Well, no, I, I made the joke of art like crafts, arts and craft skills. Yeah. I would like to point out like, it's just that a button press, right? Like I learned how to operate a button press at a young age. Like it's just, you put a piece of paper over a thing that's a blank and you push a lever. Yep. Okay, Fiona, would you like to share the first mailbag question? I'm yeah, excited, we question. actually have a lot. No, uh, someone else should read all of them. I hate reading things. <laughs> okay, so let's get this first one. This one is from, do we say who it's from? I think, I think we, we do, should. or we at least give their oh, yeah. handle on Twitter or wherever they asked it. Okay, so yeah, unless th- they said like it's an anonymous question, I assume they asked it. Okay, so this is from a friend of the show, friend of friend in friend in online life at Leaf Bread. Um, how often do y'all get to play play games versus writing them? Do you have specific things you look for in games that you play? Um, <laughs> I I have I have two games going theoretically right now. Um, I'm in Fiona's game, which it's been a couple weeks because of life yeah. stuff, I think. But um, I'm in Fiona's game, and I have a game that I run um, normally, although that one is also theoretically on hiatus at this exact moment for logistical reasons. But um, So I guess I'm playing less than I was, say, two months ago, but not by much. I, I play pretty regularly. I play like once every two weeks, and it changes depending on who's in charge of the game. So I'm lucky that my current gaming group has more than one GM, so we take turns. Though I've also been quite busy in the last two months. Vi, how about you? I um, have just the perpetual tabletop problem of scheduling, despite most of my friends living a kind of hustle online freelance kind of life. Um, it still manages to loom its shadow over us. But I... Um, uh, as someone that is just now getting into writing, I definitely play now uh, more than I write and theorize. Um, but uh, I've got a currently, I've got a Dead Planet Mothership game going on. Shout out to author Fiona Geist. Love her writing. And uh, a Pound of Flesh game going on. So that's what I've, uh, I've got two Mothership games right now. But yeah, wow. I, I, I prefer, I, I like playing. That Double reminds mosh. me, I would like to file a complaint. <laughs> Oh God! When oh. are we playing our Monster Hearts meets Regency game? <laughs> when so are we going to so play? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I have waited. I want this. I have thought about my cadre of handmaidens, her design to protect my modesty, as questionable as it is. Listen, I'm I'm on the record about how I feel about Monster Hearts in general, and I've I've agreed to play, and I will. But you're just gonna have to tell me when to show up. Like that's just let me know after this recording. You are staying after this recording. We're gonna pop open calendars. 
I've got I, Calendly. I've got a Calendly app. Please select a time slot. I will. I will. We're gonna edit just this out. Right? Tell me. Yeah, I, I'm gonna cut this down. Don't worry. Just tell me when to be there. This is not gonna get cut out. This is important. We have lives. <laughs> I am going to put you on full blast, especially since Bridgerton season two is out. How dare you? <laughs> oh, I haven't watched season two. It just came out today or I, yesterday. I watched season one like a while back. And my thought of it was like, man, this lady wants to get bread. Like this is just heterosexual breeder porn for like nice. li- literally a TV PG thirteen or whatever rating. Oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that's a, literally the conflict of the show, right? Which is he won't breed with her. Yeah, <laughs> he literally gross. Won't breed What's with the her. next question? Okay, so that's the next <laughs> specific things you look for in games you play. Is uh, that not lack of breeding fetish? Actually, <laughs> 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 the question quick. It's like, and yes. Because uh, I still didn't answer the question, so there, I got Oh, yeah, Fiona, answer, answer the question. I, I, You know, in games, I look for the magical possibility of hanging out with people I enjoy spending time with and not knowing what will happen. Wow. Hell yeah. Um, I really do feel lucky I get to play in a lot of games because I'm an insomniac that keeps weird hours, and um, I basically do kind of like you know outside of my private life you know <laughs> oh oh here's the next follow-up question Pratt. okay yeah. so also from leaf oh and what kind of things make you smile in games you play like what kind of play do you look for in the other players what makes a game night fun i think this is a whole general broad question just curious mm. okay Weirdly, what I like is players that have very different problem-solving from me. If I have a negative note on myself, I would say that I am a brutal and efficient problem-solver who is willing to go dark in a way that makes other players uncomfortable in most games I've played in. Mm. One of my favorite things is, like, I learned very quickly having... I've run a game for Fiona a couple of times um, uh, when I didn't know her very well, even at the time, and... I learned very quickly that when Fiona asked a question like, wait, so this, is there a dry riverbed nearby? Does it have lime in it? Is is there any, is there any of this particular kind of vine nearby? Like when she starts asking really specific questions, she's trying to build a bomb almost every time. Yeah. Sometimes it's poison. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Sometimes it's, just winning a trade war, but yes. <laughs> yep. And it's like, great. I want to be clear. I love that. You know, I think, um, yeah, as far as, oh, go, go for it, Mahar, sorry. No, I was simply going to say, like, for me, what's fun is having people know that, trusting you to know that you're going to do something just, like, completely out of the box. Mm-hmm. That's what I like. So, like, yeah. when, you know, like, trust me yeah. to make things crazy. I, I look yeah. to be, I just want to be surprised and I, I wouldn't mind doing some surprising in play, but it's really just like, it's goof off time for me. I, I get people who, who like to play <laughs> very serious face or very grim dark or whatever games, but it's, it's RPGs are very goofy goofball time. Um, mm. Cause I don't play. The other thing is I don't play with strangers and I feel like a lot of people do, or people play with acquaintances. I only play with besties for the most part. I do wonder so, like, how much like theorizing comes from adapting play and rules and tools to be for, for strangers. Yeah. There's, there's a, yeah. So anyway, that's, but, that's like yeah. a, an ongoing conversation I have mm-hmm. in my head is like, 
sometimes I read things and I go, I feel like this is aimed at people who are not me or people who play with people they don't know very well, um, which is not me. But yeah, it's mostly about surprise. And sometimes that's like a, I made them laugh. And sometimes that's a like, holy shit, you, you, you did what, you know, like that kind of deal. Yeah. I, I think that when I'm, what I like for in, in uh, like games that I play is that I look for, um, like, I like having a module or a situation that like I can put players in and like, just have them explore it. Like, that's just all I want is people like exploring cool situations, talking to weird people and, um, and, and the, the, uh, I guess kind of, I do like those one liners that come out of it because I do play with a very, a Blorbo crowd to use a, a word we've established thus far. Oh yeah. Like to be clear with all this stuff about like, me saying kind of serious setting stuff like i like making puns and jokes hell yeah like i definitely kind of play to win and i like playing in sad sack worlds but like i don't believe you should take it completely seriously like mm. at the point that you've accepted haha like we're not good people right like we're we're researching <laughs> blood magic like yeah, you've got like a gallows humor people. kind of approach to it i think yeah like you know, which it's like one reason, right? I would just never do AP. Like, I don't, I don't think it translates, right? <laughs> like, on a certain level. Um, yeah, I, I think that, like, you know, I, I, I like people having very different ideas of what's interesting than me. You mm. know, like, I, I will solve most problems by like a combination of shonen a- anime protagonist determination and um, smashing things. Good. Good. <laughs> so, like, yes. there needs to be someone with a more subtle mindset. Do we have any more questions? Oh, yes, we do. We have one thing that's really interesting, I think. This is from Alec Loves Books at Alchemy Alec. Okay, so I've been really enjoying Chris's Adventure Tourism podcast. So, this is Chris <gasps> Bissett. Oh, and yeah. Shout out Adventure Tourism. Yeah. Great podcast. So, yeah. our Bissett, I'm so sorry. Okay. Bissett? Yes. I, I appeared on that podcast and I don't know how to pronounce Chris's last name. Okay. I think it's Beset. I would go with that. Okay, so here's the question. What are favorite adventures you feel have influenced your work? Ooh. Well, I've got the short list of adventures that I cite for everything. Um, Wet Grandpa by mm-hmm. the absolutely incomparable and untouchable Evie Lockhart. Um, my favorite writer in RPGs right now, other than uh, pr- present company excluded and, um, Crypts of Endormancy, which is spectacular. And I think illustrative of, I think Crypts of Endormancy has a vision of what RPG adventures can be, um, or could be that is completely not only like at odds with what's going on in RPG adventures right now, but also supremely unfashionable. Um, in a way that I just adore. And uh, for the third one, it's um, it's always B two. It's it's um, it, it's B two, which is I don't I don't remember what it's called now. Uh, keep on the Borderlands. There we go. <laughs> How about you, Vi? I um, could. Well, actually, this this episode is probably coming out in advance. This is advance for podcast listeners, uh, avid podcast listeners abroad or uh, everywhere. Um, I'm actually on the podcast as well. And I'm actually talking with Chris about 
Deep Carbon Observatory and my my love for it and my problems with it and my dislike of the remaster. <laughs> oh, problematic faves. Yeah. We yeah. Lo- we stand a problematic fave. Mhm. I've run uh it so many times, but uh yeah, that would be that'd be my top of my list and the one I talk about on the uh Name Drop podcast. So that hasn't been said already. I'm going to throw in, I also was on the podcast, so um, <laughs> shout out to Chris for great taste in podcast guests. I, Absolutely. I, I did mention to them, we should figure out how to make our podcasts follow each other on social media. <laughs> Since we have like such an overlap. But, um, right, uh, I, I was on the show to talk about Scenic Dunsmith. The other two I wanted to talk about and didn't get to um because you know i only appear on a show once uh our bakto's uh, terrifying cuisine um literally one of my favorite oh yeah shout out back to i've run that probably more than any other adventure in the world i i literally have a notebook with like the notes from like multiple times i've run it kept like chess notation i think i've converted it to troika twice i made an into oh the God. odd background generator for it and then ran it at i forget what con because it was one of the online ones i think early covid when i was still working in person god i need to read bakto's then don't i (laughs) oh it's spectacular it's It's, the only one shot i understand and like nice um yeah on like themes that i like in all games it's food and the other one is cockamania um and that's by BJ, whose last name I also can't pronounce because I can't pronounce anything I've not heard out loud. Resha. Like, Resha, which, see, I'm going to pronounce wrong. I'm sorry. But is a great adventure, you know, if you like sort of like, I'd say A Thousand Thousand Islands mm. is a very similar vibe, but it's about cockfighting and, you know, like, magical things in the background and it has like a nice sense of like small wonder like those are sort of like three that i can cover very quickly that aren't just me being like look you should probably just read as many things as you possibly can um (laughs) yeah all excellent choices though Hmm. i will agree with fiona like for me stuff i like cockamania is great uh zedek stuff is great Yes. Oh man, I forgot I mean, to say I could have really made like everything that I ever wrote. Yeah. 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 Literally. Like I, I said ATI because I assume listeners of our podcast know Zedek is really good at game design, but that might be a bad assumption mm-hmm. by not saying it. Um but, yeah. Like, ZDX to you, Thousand Thousand Islands. Learn Song of the Bachelor. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so. I, I got to uh, I got to edit uh, one of Zedek's books early on in my editing career, and it's still a highlight of of my whole my whole time in RPGs was getting to edit Spy in the House of F, which is spectacular. Um, go read it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Mahar, you were going. Oh, no, don't worry. I just have one last question, I think. Oh, no, wait, you only got to say one thing. You should finish your answer. No, but we're I, going it's, it's already covered. Finish your answer. Finish your I didn't answer. have any, like, to be honest, I grew up being completely homebrewed because we couldn't afford the modules growing up. So it's just like... <laughs> whatever it was always like oh this is this kind of reminds me of this movie so like there are games which remind me of labyrinth which i super appreciated growing up um there were yeah stuff like that like really when you get down to it i actually don't even make modular adventures 
uh, I've always yeah, you're, been, you're kind of in the story game world. Yeah, that's not the adventures know, aren't aren't big uh, in that. That's really fun. You know what? Let me send you my 16 page 5e document of my own setting, <laughs> and you might rethink that. Okay, so you're more in the trad game world then. Uh, no, you see. You see, I don't. I'm non-binary when it comes to gaming. So trad gaming and story games I'm in the same. Sorry, paragraph. I'm not. I'm not shadowsexual, and neither am I like narrativosexual. Um, but yeah. So, but yeah. Okay. So here's the la- last one. I think from Alchemy Alec again. If you could have any RPG made into a film, which one would it be, and who would you want to see star in it? Which is actually like you know relevant, considering it's the Oscars today at time of recording. Mm. Blades in the Dark. Blades in the Dark wants it so bad. I'm sorry. Well, it's, it's getting, getting a show. <gasps> right. 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 Oh crap. Is that a cop out? Blades in the Dark just wants it so bad. <laughs> Blades in the Dark wants very bad to be a movie. Yes. Um, uh, okay. I don't know if that means it should be. This is nothing against John Harper, but like, is Blades in the Dark the cinematic experience that like you're thrilled by? Well, it already has an actual TV contract, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's it does. why I was saying, yeah. you know, Vi, you know, is that the answer you want to give? Absolutely. 100%. Okay, hell yeah. No, I think it'd be a pretty, like, I, I don't know. I, I don't have a lot of heist media in my, in my, uh, my experience packet but i think for me i would um i (laughs) okay i'm gonna be an old man uh again but i want to see a movie or other piece of media set in talislanta i think i think that would be rad nice yeah i want to see like an eastern european director get talislanta yeah exactly like Like, yeah that's what i want former soviet bloc state-sponsored filmmaking where everything is handcrafted just and i I want them to have a big elves i want them to have like a big budget but less than they need yes yeah really pull it off absolutely this is why i keep telling people to watch on the silver globe (laughs) yes oh who would star in it who i forgot to say i i I want my blades and dark video or movie to be um animated and the protag voiced by steven russell because thief and dishonored but who would who would star in your talislanta oh god i don't know any celebrities (laughs) elijah wood okay good good (laughs) timothy chalamet there That's why it has more money than it needs, but also less. They spend it all on Timothy Chalamet. Yeah. Like everything is handcrafted by taking over a small village, except for Timothy Chalamet, who now owns the village. You know, for me, I would like to. Can I be weird in saying I would like a current <coughs> novel to become an RPG, which would then become a TV slash movie thing? Ooh. Okay. So, like, if you've ever read Jacqueline Carey's Kushaline series and Naama series, so that's nine books in total, turn that a speculative fiction, uh, a speculative fantasy fiction France, where f- the f- where where Terre d'Ange is basically the French world, but when their ancestors commingle with angels fallen from heaven, it's amazing. As an wow. as an RPG, it's a oh, lyric sensual, sensuous, amazing writing. Oh, Jared mm. read it; it's beautiful. Oh, and also powerfully queer. Like, yes, 
Okay, like, hell yeah. It's super queer. Super queer. Love You're romancing it. angels. That's, you can make that pretty queer. I oh, think it's 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 queer because it's like 600 years into the future so you're just seeing all of their descendants dealing with the fact that they have the ichor of the gods in them it's anyway nice so okay. that make it into its own rpg and then make it into make it into a tv series because i think rpgs are not meant to be movies per se unless they're very very specific so make it into a long haul Make it into a long haul um, TV show, and given, you know what, I would I would say that I would like it to be, I would like the lead female to be portrayed by Kiki Dunst by Miss Kirsten Dunst herself, mm. but she'd have to dye her hair like sable. But still, it's gonna be. <laughs> That's a good color for for how you've set up this book series, sable yes. specifically. Oh, Look. it's oh, it's it's such a oh. Here, how about this? Here's here's the angle of that book, right? So the main character Phaedra. Sorry to spoil, but I'll make this really quick. Is is cursed slash blessed by her god to feel all pain as pleasure. Oh, oh, okay. oh. That's just Slanash. No, trust me, trust me. It's really, really good because there's so much agency involved because she resists it. But this uniquely makes her someone who is trained in the arts of covertsy, where she is both courtesan and spy. Oh. Yes. And it's so good. It's such, it's so good. It's so good. Read it. Okay. People are going to think that I'm going to say Riffs because clearly, except for it's yeah, already got Riffs a movie. Yeah, is a good answer. It already has a movie. And it has that a movie? And Jupiter Ascending. Other <laughs> um, <laughs> casualties, they made Channing Tatum into a dog boy. Already done perfect, other than they didn't go full anthropological do- anthropomorphic dog boy on him, which was apparently so the original true. Goal. Preach. So the <laughs> answer for like following it up, because I have to go with something kind of out of nowhere, but a bit established, um, is... Mateo Diaz Torres's um, like fantasy, um, like Florida ish setting um, slash Cuba ish setting that they wrote after like a th- most thoroughly pernicious pamphlet, I think would be cool as hell. Just, you know, like semi feudal, like semi industrial, like swamp, you know, with like Victorianisms and trade and et cetera. And like imbalance everything, and you know, lots of magic, and kind of like menacing Fae mm. is really good. Um, I think as just underexplored territory that could be interesting, right? I also like swamps a lot. There's yeah, that sounds rad. I've never heard of that setting. Uh, it was, I think, when Gloom Train as a thing. It was called like honey and salt was i think like or the house of honey and salt is one of the things that has a great name in it um mm. but right like but knowing that everything i want is cursed right it will star scarlett johansson oh somehow wearing oh, fiona um, <laughs> i don't know why i didn't see that coming somehow as a cajun like trying her best to pretend that she's a zydeco musician for some reason <laughs> despite it not actually being a thing in the setting as far as I remember. Swamplet Johansson, everybody.
I think that's the episode. Yeah. Yeah. There we yeah. go. Okay. And yeah. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We've got a Twitter. Yeah. yeah at at, at kind trying. Capital K, capital T. Not that it should matter. See you all, friendos. And thank you so much, Vi, for joining us for two episodes and trying it's to be been, kind. It's been such a pleasure. Go to Vi's YouTube channel. Oh, it's Collabs Without Permission. Collabs Without Permission. It's I'm making I'm making videos. And I, I cited it's so nice to be on a podcast that I cited academically. Academic podcast. It's it's a good one. I'm glad you are listening to it, dear listener. 